Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And I am talking to Roger Bennett. He is the co-host of the long-running Men in Blazers podcast, TV show, live show, fan club, soccer empire. Welcome, Roger. Oh, Peter Kafka, I've got to say, it is a joy to be here. I listen to your podcast all the time, and your voice is like the sirens in the Odyssey, and I'm going to have to tie myself to the mast like Odysseus so we can just get through this. See, this is the advantage of having a classical British education, which we can discuss because you've written a book about it. It's called Reborn in the USA. It's an Englishman's love letter to his chosen home. But now you live in America. You are an American citizen. And I wanted to have you on to talk about soccer, as we call it here, um, and, and why we should pay attention to it and, and, and capitalism. That's a big chunk of it right now. And we talk about your career, how you got into podcasting and becoming a media superstar midway through life. And then we could talk about your book, all those things. We are recording this in late June. You'll hear this probably July 1st. Maybe, maybe it's your July 4th weekend listening, um, which means there is still time to consume something called Euro. 2020, which is happening in 2021. <laughs> Roger Bennett, what is what is the Euro Cup and why should we care about it? Uh, it is a, it's like the World Cup, but just European teams taking place in 11 beer-soaked cities uh, across the continent. It's happening during the day. Uh, it's prominence on ESPN's properties, on ABC's properties, uh, is a remarkable testament to the rise of the sport and the remarkable testament to America's love of anything, finally, that allows them to have an excuse to daytime drink. The daytime watching has been great. Um, I, I won't say this out loud or anyone could hear it, but in theory, I could be watching games while I'm also working from home. It's timed very well for an East Coast. Screens within screens. A lot of spreadsheets I'm imagining are open in offices with uh, ESPN's uh, app also open in the corner. And we always joked, you know, I've been in America since right before the 1994 World Cup and soccer, as, uh, as you call it here, we've always joked on our show, soccer, America's sport of the future, as it has been since 1972. And it was always meant to be kind of the next big thing here, like hula hoops or pogo sticks. Um, and it never was an overnight success, but it's growth since I arrived and not because of my arrival. I've just been witness and great beneficiary of it. But it is growing instead slowly and steadily um, to where it is right now. And we always joke one of the real reasons that America went in this time over the past 25 years for really, truly, madly, deeply despising the global phenomena of football um, is just the excuse that it allows to daytime drink. If you are in a bar at 7.30 with a beer in front of you, you know, society often frowns upon that kind of beer for breakfast uh, mentality. But if you are in that same bar with that same beer in front of you and Chelsea happen to be playing Manchester United on a television uh, uh, above your head, you are a soccer fan and thus participating in the in the great game. And that is one of the great drivers. You're also allowed to daytime drink if you're getting on a plane and then apparently you cause a ruckus and, and the TSA has to come throw you off. That's <laughs> happened like literally like 1900 <laughs> times this year. So so soccer I has... I, I don't make the rules, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> soccer has got the Bennett bump um, and it has grown and I played it in the 70s and it was just a thing that you did and no adults really knew about. And, and obviously it's grown year over year, but it's still... A minor sport in the U.S. Um, is people it, are is it like, is people it like, are watching it on on ESPN, but I've got I've got some ratings here: the Netherlands versus Austria and Denmark versus Belgium. A couple days ago, this will be a couple weeks ago by the time you hear it. Uh, less than nine hundred thousand people. Nine hundred thousand people were watching it. It's the decent. quality. The quality. The quality of those people. In the, they're in excellent terms of, in terms of the gold that networks and uh, and their 
satellite offspring and now the whole digital race for uh, television hearts and minds and the Paramount Pluses and the uh, and the Peacocks and the ones, the quality uh, of those numbers the, in the in the yeah. demo quality that but Olymp- really Olympic, media gold. Olympic men's swimming trials did 1.9 million that same day um, and there are certainly that, not a huge that, number of swimming fans I think it's just if you put something that's yeah. the true sport of the future so so tell us the the p- folks who aren't who either don't care about sports or aren't uh, were unaware the Euros were going on what what is the appeal of the Euros the people who love it what is uh, it's a high level soccer but what else it, it, we always say that when two teams take the field, their nation's history take the field alongside them. And so in the European format, you have France playing Germany as one of the early matches. Let's just say there's a lot of history there. Mm-hmm. Well, pretty much when, when Germany plays anybody uh, in this tournament, there's a lot of history. And so you have what in the rest of the world, the, the World Cup, the Euros is a... It is an echo of the World Cup. It's almost like a global eclipse um, that takes over uh, the the entire planet as these games go on. And particularly in lockdown, Peter, I think uh, sport in general, but football as the world sport, when people have been confined, when they've been in lockdown, you have an incredible sense of global connection uh, to the world outside of you a thrilling narrative as this sport with the best players in the world um truly the greats who just make better decisions human decisions uh, than the merely good players uh, do um minute to minute playing live without a safety net uh national icons right the world right now is talking about a couple of players who no one really uh, outside of the bubble of of true football fans knew their names a a a, a couple of weeks ago true legends national icons are being formed uh, huge statues are being uh, smelt uh, in nations across uh, Europe for their new uh, uh, heroes and it's all unspooling almost like a great telenovela on Mexican television but live uh, in front of our eyes without a script then that's the true joy of the Euros. The national identity and the politics are so interesting from an American perspective where we we were profoundly anti-history. We we are uninterested in things that happen beyond our own borders. <laughs> and we're frequently telling people to keep our politics out of our, our sports. And for something like the Euros and the World Cup, it, it's front and center. The announcers generally don't talk about it. Like in that France-Germany game, they didn't say the word blitzkrieg at any point. But it's, it's understood and the supporters fully understand it. Does it complicate things as, as if you're, if you're not a, uh, if you're not German, how do you feel about rooting for Germany or, or, um, you got, I just heard you talking about this, uh, Hungary was a plucky underdog recently, but they're also, as you pointed out, a little fascist, uh, maybe a lot uh, fascist. Uh, yeah. uh, and so how do you, <laughs> are you, say- are, do you have to think about this stuff or can you not think about it and enjoy the game as much, or does it have to be part of what you're consuming? How can you not? I mean, that is the joy of world football and if you do edit this podcast i think you can take uh you can have your editor delete the word a little uh before you mention fascist extra fascist yeah i mean the 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 joy of football to me is that it's merely a mirror that reflects the societies that surround it in every single nation and so this weekend which will be a couple of weekends ago by the time your listeners um hear this hungary played france in Hungary, a tiny Hungary compared to World Cup winners, Euro favourites France, heavily, heavily favoured, dominating the game. And uh, in the game, in the 47th minute, a Hungarian player broke down the flank and it was a counterpunch, an incredible counterstrike, Anderson Silva-esque counterstrike, shock, horror, delirium, joy, and hilarious meme of the Hungarians going mad and smashing up the the desk of some poor pitch side announcer who was, her face was just like the shock that the rest of the world were feeling in this This moment. is what we call a sideline announcer in America. There you go, America. And, um, and, and it was an incredible moment, an exquisite sporting moment. But when you do step back, and you have to step back, Peter, you know, a huge number of fans, thousands of them march through the streets before the game behind the banner, um, which uh, which made it clear that they wanted a ban to kneeling uh, in support of uh, football becoming less racist. So that was their opening position. I think they also had a, um, a, a deep homophobic statement that they wanted to make clear to the world. Many of them 
were wearing black shirts. Um, and I say, yeah, the last Euros, Iceland were the dream team, the tiny little nation that dazzled the world. And they pioneered something that's now become standard at all sporting <laughs> events. I think it's not legal to finish an event without having the Viking thunderclap where the whole uh, fan base uh, clap their hands above their heads, a bit like they're at a Queen concert. Um, and that was so cute. It was so charming. It was so wonderful. It was so emotionally bonding. I will say the Viking Thunderclap, when performed by a couple of thousand blokes, many of whom are wearing black shirts, slightly less cute. Uh, but this is what we have to engage in. This is the real world. Um, and you can say sports is a thing that we like to use to get away from the real world. But honestly, the joy of football in every regard is that global economics, the, the tectonic plates of world politics, geopolitics, um, cultural uh, and social movements, all are refracted uh, through this game. And to me, that's what makes it so wonderful. And I think to, to, to millions of Americans that now follow the game, that's uh, utterly what they find uh, fascinating uh, about the levels, the, the nuanced levels of the game. I also learned there was a country called North Macedonia uh, during this uh, Euro Cup. That was news to me. So um, you get to learn a bit as well. You mentioned the real world and, and, and global capitalism. So that's a nice segue for my next question for you. What was the Super League? Because this is something that, that Americans might have seen on Twitter for a minute. And why am I talking about the Super League in past tense? Thank God for now. For now, uh, the Super League is being talked about in the past tense. It was a remarkable moment in sporting history, probably one of the, arguably one of the greatest moments of miscalculation by sports owners um, at, who deeply publicly humiliated themselves. And it was a very American moment. What it was was the super brand teams, the juggernaut teams, the global brand teams. And there's a couple in each country. Obviously, the Premier League is the most watched league around the world. And what the Premier League did with its founding in the early 90s, it fused global television networks, a patchwork of ma ever more massive deals, uh, which just made it a global juggernaut with incredible brand deals. Manchester United became the gold standard. They realized very quickly they could stop just being a football team with a, a local fan base that who they catered to. And when I grew up, you would watch football and to be a good football owner was just to put bums on seats. If your stadium had 40,000 Everton fans in it every week, that was fantastic. Uh, but what the Premier League did, it created a global audience for the product. Um, and Manchester United took um, that global audience very, very seriously from the off and did rights deals in every single quadrant of the globe where they developed an official credit card an official airline, an official beer, right down to, I crap, you're not, Peter, official potato snacks and official tractor engines in every quadrant <laughs> of, um, of, of the globe. And when you have that, you're suddenly playing to a massive global audience. And we had the then Liverpool CEO, Peter Moore, come on our show about two years ago. And he said, as a really, as a, this thing has always been talked about. Why are we even playing against the lesser teams? Why are Bayern Munich, who win the German league every year, why are they playing other lesser German teams? What if they just played Real Madrid every week? What if they just played the biggest team in Italy, Juventus, every week? What if they played oh, Liverpool, Manchester United every week? And it was just a... A, 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 a colossus super league. What a creative name that was. And Peter Moore said it's the biggest tension when you're running a football club in the modern era is to, uh, to cater to the diehards in your own city who for multiple generations have followed your team week in, week out, home games, road games, traveling into Europe in the middle of the week, doing everything for the team and the vast fan base in, in China, in Australia, in across Africa, and of course now in North America, in the United States especially, trying to cater to the global audience while keeping the team authentic for the local audience, he said is the biggest tension. And the Super League faltered. What the idea was, it would be a bit in American terms like Duke, North Carolina, Gonzaga, Kansas, 
announcing a breakaway from March Madness where they said, you know what, we want a tournament where we're guaranteed participation every single year. Wouldn't March Madness be better if we didn't have to play the 16 seeds? What if it's just number one seeds going for it all the time? That's what you want to see. You're tuning in to see Duke versus North Carolina. Exactly. You're not tuning in to see the Richmond Spiders unless they beat Duke, but you want to see uh, those teams. I want a shout out to all the Richmond Spider fans. I love you and I love you all. But it was an enormous decision point which was forced in large part by American owners, um, along with oligarchs and sheikhs who've who've taken uh, an interest in football because of the global reach that it gives them. And it would have transformed European soccer. The the American owners essentially are vastly wealthy, your Stan Kroenke's, uh, your John Henry's who owns the Red Sox, Stan Kroenke owns the, the, the LA Rams. Um, It's not exactly clear to us that he actually knows he owns Arsenal. It may just be a rounding error uh, on his balance sheet. But him and, of course, the Glazers, Tampa Bay Buccaneers owners who own Manchester United, and they wanted to transform European soccer for their own financial benefit. They couldn't keep up with the oligarchs and the sheikhs, essentially. They have a lot of money, but the oligarchs and sheikhs have a bottomless pit and essentially are using Premier League teams that they own to sports wash their uh, you know, United Arab Emirates, let's get some good press. Let's own a football club that wins things. It makes us look great. Um, and the Americans really, they looked at how their American sports teams run, where there's no relegation, which can be financially devastating. You can't miss out on the Champions Re- No League. relegation, meaning if you're in the NBA, you don't get kicked out of the NBA for the worst yeah. team in the NBA, which yeah. is how Americans think about sports. But that's not the case in, in European soccer. Exactly. If you're the worst team in the Premier League, you go down to what is it, the the less Premier League. Yeah, I mean, the, the Arizona, the, the, so Arizona and Major League Baseball would be panicking right now. They'd see the Portucket Red Sox being promoted coming up and they'd be going down. And so the financial uncertainty, they wanted to erase it by creating a league where the best perpetually qualified played against the best. And it was like a scene from that old sci-fi show V where we almost, we welcomed these American owners. They were fantastic for the game, the Premier League. They brought money, they brought ideas, they brought creativity. They did great, some of them. Some of them, uh, but they turned out like that old show V where they were essentially ended up being terrible aliens who eat all the English people. And it was too late. They announced this thing um, and devastated a complex European footballing pyramid that had built up over the last 140 years, essentially tried to turn it into a blockbuster profit maximizing annual big WrestleMania. And that idea lasted for two days they announced it they got they lassoed together the biggest teams in italy biggest teams in spain barcelona real madrid tried to get the biggest teams in germany that was complicated for them uh, for reasons i won't bore you with and all the biggest premier league teams and they did i mean i've spoken to many of the owners they did a lot of planning for this peter they they hired political lobbyists they hired marketing teams the marketing jp morgan teams. was involved yes i mean they, as they are in everything in good uh, that's good in life right you know, the marketing teams had marketing teams. This was a big plan. They thought of everything, every scenario. And the one scenario that they had not thought about, Liverpool, Arsenal, Manchester United, is that their own fans would rise up against this idea themselves. And that's ultimately what took them down. Like Even though Liverpool- this, this in theory is supposed to benefit those teams, right? It's supposed to bring more money to the teams, which gets allows them to buy better players. That should benefit the fans. And, and they, they did not want any part it of it. It was a massive, massive misread by the owners. That's exactly what they thought. They thought, you know, it, there's, there's two teams in Liverpool, where I'm from, uh, Liverpool, who are like the Yankees historically, um, and then Everton. If you don't have a Premier League football team, welcome to Everton, dear listeners. We're more like the New York Mets. We try hard. We've had some great memories, but when you have them, you know you should celebrate them and just dance like you're at your own kid's wedding. You, you learn a lot about life by being an Everton fan. And I think the Liverpool owners, the Boston Red Sox, Fenway Sports Group, they thought that the Everton fans would rise up and say, it's disgusting what you're doing. You are going to destroy the league pyramid of 90 teams in England. There's going to be hundreds of jobs lost at the lower level. The money's going to be bled out the game and tilted purely to your clubs. They thought Liverpool fans would have the the Peter Kafka uh, joy perspective. This is great for us, so we love it. But instead, their own fans, I mean, Manchester United fans rioted ahead of one of their games, took the field to stop their own team getting out of their own bus and play their game. They were so furious. It just showed the lack of understanding that owners who they saw as absentee landlords had about what really made 
British football special for them. And, and it was their own fans who brought them down, which and, is truly a and remarkable And two win. days later, the, the teams all say, ah, actually, no, we're not going to do this. Forget we ever said it. Please carry on. Yeah, carry Amazing. on. Amazing. We didn't mean to hurt you. We've learned our lesson. And owners, some owners, the Manchester United owners, had not spoken to their fans in years. They didn't address the team. Suddenly, recording uh, videos and where they where they apolo- apology videos, meeting with fan groups where they were absolutely harangued. Um, and this is still playing. The fallout of it uh, is still playing out. But it was one of the great. It was the new Coke. The new Coke of sporting ownership decisions. The new Coke or the AT&T buying and then selling Time Warner in the span of a couple years. Um, And it is is delightful when really rich, really powerful people screw up in a big public way. There's old old fashioned schadenfreude. And, And I also think a more positive spin is it is it gives the rest of us hope that 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 all the avenues have not been sealed off that that rich powerful people can still screw up in really fundamental ways and which means there's opportunity for the rest of us that said to be semi devil's advocate here it seems like giving people what they want is a good business move and people want to see real madrid play liverpool they want to see bayern munich play Arsenal, which used to be a good team and still is not, but doesn't matter. Um, and and also, unfettered capitalism is what's going on in European soccer already. You've said this several times, right? These these teams, the, the most competitive teams, are owned by the richest people. They're owned by literally Russian oligarchs and and sovereign wealth funds from the Middle East and 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 plain old American billionaires. And there's no limit on what they can spend, so they they buy and sell players um, with increasing frequency. They pay more and more for them. And the smaller teams, the Evertons of the world, let alone the, the even tinier teams, um, are consistently on the losing end. So isn't just isn't this where we're headed regardless? Well, I'd have to take issue with your premise that this is what people want. Um, and I'd break that down a little. I, I don't know who those people are. To me, the takeaway of this pushback and it was a remarkable moment it was football has changed so bloody much since i was a kid I mean, it, it's roots it was a working class game of local incredible local pride i grew up in liverpool in the 1980s i, I mean I, the premise of my book is growing up in this place during uh, a time when the country was transforming and the south became wealthy under margaret thatcher and the north the industrial north uh, really fell apart in many ways post-war. Just industry, the coal industry, the steel industry, the cotton industry. We we used to have an empire. When that fell apart, Liverpool, the port city that used to serve the world, had no reason to exist. A bit like Baltimore without the the crab cake upside. And I grew up in a Liverpool which was bereft. The unemployment soared um economically uh the the politically we were utterly utterly bereft it felt like you could stand on a street corner and if you stared long enough you could see the city falling apart at the seams with your very eyes and football was what we had we had football and we had music and these teams liverpool and everton would go into the continent that they take on the best of Europe, we'd smite them. And it gave football it ultimately is about incredible local pride. I and mean, I think what the Super League teaches us, obviously the, the Premier League has changed, uh, brought huge money into the game, transformed um the wealth, um, which is what's attracted American sports entrepreneurs to own uh, teams in the first place when you speak to them. Uh, they'll say, you know, we own a Major League Baseball team. And when we sell a hat that says Boston Red Sox on the front, we have to rev share with all the other baseball owners. But they loved that when they sold the Liverpool shirt and they found out, you, what do you mean we keep all that money? They mm-hmm. loved the, they loved how actually unfettered that sports ownership was. But the one thing they couldn't get their heads around was that always at risk, you might not qualify for the Champions League, which brings tremendous riches. You might get relegated uh, there's always a there's always a jeopardy they thought they could eliminate that jeopardy and although the game has transformed unrecognizably when i was a, uh, from when i was a kid um, this moment was really when football fans rose up and said no enough the, well, this is not this is not what we want yes we want liverpool to play real madrid but we want them to qualify we want them to earn it we want them to deserve it and if you take that away the reality is football's all about dreams. 
It's all about stories. It's all about a deep connection between people and their club and incredible memories between grandparents, kids, uh, kids, kids that you share. And if you ultimately, if they had created the Super League, they would have buried those dreams alive for for hundreds of teams and then just almost killed the goose that laid the golden egg for the big teams. Real Madrid against Liverpool would be kind of come quite boring if there was no real stakes for the loser. Yeah, I think that's that's the strongest argument against it. I mean, because I'm listening to you talk about it and I understand the passion and I don't have anything like the passion for my Minnesota Vikings, but I still understand (laughs) that they've lost four Super Bowls and it's just it's it's decades of futility. And so one day if they win, it'll be that much more exciting. Um, And I felt that way when the Minnesota Twins won in 1987 and it was the first ever championship in Minnesota. Um, I get that. On the other hand, the reason Liverpool is a hugely successful team again is because a billionaire came in and bought really expensive, great players. And I was listening to your podcast recently and you were saying, oh, one of your Everton players, that's your team, uh, was performing well at the Euros and you hoped he didn't perform too well because (laughs) then he'd get snapped up by another team, right? And and we, this is what part Americans get, right? You you have a local player, he does really well, but unless you're in New York or LA or a handful of other uh, communities, you're going to lose that player to a bigger, more bigger club in a fancier city with more opportunities. That's the way of the world. And, and probably it should be because the player wants to do that. Whether or not the Super League 2 or whatever we're going to call it manifests, aren't we just inevitably handing, moving to a world where there's going to be a handful of super clubs owned by really, 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 really rich people, and they will dominate world soccer regardless of how what the structure is called. But they already are in this right. current structure as it is. That's the, that's the reality. And I'll say, I love America, Peter. I adore it. I always joke that I love America like Ken, more than Kenny Powers loves America. Um, and it's the one thing that I truly don't understand um, about American sports, which I also love as a Chicago Bears fan, as a Chicago White Sox fan. I I adore it all, but I I have never understood why when Stan Kroenke decides, you know what, going to move the team from St. Louis, going to move it to Los Angeles. You know, there are people in St. Louis that are burnt, disappointed, left in agony, as there are still Baltimore Colts fans who still Mm -hmm. feel the pain uh, of that team leaving. I genuinely don't understand just how every other fan is just like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, great. LA, cool. New stadium. And how the tea, the, the ultimately the difference we're really talking about between you and me and your perspective uh, and my understanding is that teams really are franchises here that are owned like any franchise, be it, um, be it a Subway franchise or an NFL franchise and are totally at the whim of the owner. And the, that is where the deep misread came in here. Clubs in Europe are so deeply rooted into the communities in which they exist. You cannot move the, you can't, there's one club in my lifetime that's moved and it's just, it's got a mark of K, not just for its own fans, but for all other football fans deride it. It will never lose that mark of Kane. And um, the the willingness that American fans have to just be like, yep, it's a franchise, pull it out of wherever, move it to wherever. That is a blind spot that American owners have about European sports and the teams that they buy. Um, the, the Ultimately, in the Super League case, was massive. These teams are embedded so deeply in the fabric and the consciousness of their fan base. You, uh, you truly try and alter everything at your peril going to break up this conversation for just a minute so we can hear from a sponsor. We'll be right back. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. And we're back. You have been a, a, a soccer fanatic all your life because you're British and you're from Liverpool. How did you make this into a career? You've been podcasting since, what, 2010? Is that right? Correct. Um, when you started that, I think you were that was Grantland, Bill Simmons' old thing at ESPN. I'm assuming that was not a full-time job for you. So what were you doing at the time in addition to podcasting? And is podcasting full-time for you now? Yeah, I, um, I started covering football 
I, I always loved football. It's how I made sense of the world. Uh, like many Liverpool lads, through music and through football, it's how we understood ourselves, our own identity. I came here to America right before the 94 World Cup, which was, again, meant to transform the game. Its whole intention was to finally, you know, the space was Spock's final frontier. The United States had always been global footballs. And the World Cup here was meant to make the game go. And it is still the most successful World Cup in terms of bodies in stadia uh, of all time. Uh, but it was like a big circus that came and went. And what I witnessed after I came here was a, instead of this overnight sensation that football, male football, was always meant to be, because the US, of course, is just the greatest team in the world in the, in the women's side of the game. But on the men's side, it's lagged behind. And instead of it being an overnight success, it's been slow and steady wins a race. And I'd watched as football, World Cup to World Cup, move from incredible um, influencer uh, pastime around 2006, uh, 2010. It was a, a World Cup where if you were in the know, you'd, you'd go to this Italian restaurant in Brooklyn yep. to watch Italian games. You'd go to this Brazilian barbecue um, in LA to watch the Brazilian games. It moved somewhere around there. As ESPN started to really take it seriously, it moved uh, in 2010 from um, from circus that everybody watched to something that really left a legacy, particularly as the Premier League rights moved to NBC. And it meant that the storylines uh, were easily accessible uh, week to week. It left it was almost like a wave hitting a beach each World Cup was, leaving more and more flotsam and jetsam that was then serviced, this audience, by more and more rights being snapped up. So around 2006, I was writing uh, books, cultural books, and I, I watched the World Cup, and it was on ESPN, and a commentator, uh, you know, they're still throwing the product together, Bob Lee leading the way, what an incredible pioneer for the game in America. Um, and around him, it was a fairly patchwork cast of characters. And one of the commentators said, and here's the world's most famous footballer, Charlie Beckham takes the field. <laughs> and I just, I watched, I was like, oh my God, really? I was like, God, this, this is, we've got to do, there's a gap here. Like there's a, a knowledge gap, a context gap. There's got to be, there's got to be more to this to service this fan base. Um, and it's then that I started to, I, I reached out to ESPN and uh, got a deal to write a history of the uh, of the World Cup for the 2010 World Cup. And while writing it, uh, I met at a wedding, a story that I don't need to bore you with because it's been told many times, on a boat uh, during, the 2006, uh, during the 2006 World Cup final, the Zidane headbutt final, some of your listeners may remember that one. Um, I was actually on a boat um, at a wedding of someone I, whose wedding I didn't want to go to. This was the World Cup bloody final. But if we didn't leave during extra time, as my wife told me, the boat would leave without us. And it was on that boat. I was furious to be there, surrounded by Americans, none of whom knew the World Cup was even taking place. And I was in a terrible mood, met a man at the bar who was in an even worse mood than I was and introduced myself. It turned out to be Michael Davis, who was also so furious uh, to be on that boat at that wedding rather than watching history unfurl in extra time that we didn't get to see. And uh, we just got on so well. And the connection, I, I, I didn't grow up with Michael, but from the moment we started to speak, it was as if we had grown up, just the connection, the role football plays in our life. For me, I always joke that football you know, allows me to experience emotions like joy, uh, defeat, failure, uh, redemption, tenacity, all these great human traits that most people feel in real life, but I am numb to and dead inside. And we just decided then and there that for the next World Cup, we would do something together. Um, and that's something to now, before Grantland, we podded for the entire World Cup every day for ESPN. And that's where it was born. Podcasting had just started. So I think you can say in two ways, Peter, we were in the right place at the right time twice. Both football, the, the the tectonic plates of the audience here in America was about to shift, but also this bizarre mechanism, this cheap mechanism, this easy mechanism, podcasting had just, just 
just began. We thought we were just talking into tin cans that were connected by string. We had no idea what was happening. But from the very beginning, we built what I call a cult audience with the with the first month of, of podcasting from ESPN. And, and everything has just built out from there. And so Michael Davies was and is a successful TV producer. He's the man uh, partly responsible for who wants to be a millionaire, among other reality shows. Um, so and he's still doing that. Is is being a professional men in blazer a, a full time job for you now? Or are you doing stuff? Is, is it one of many things you're doing? It's a full time job and a half. It really, uh, the, the, the rise of football in this country um, with the World Cup now in November 2022 on the horizon and then the U- United States with Canada and Mexico is going to host the 2026 World Cup. And with so the, the US will be in in that one. We can't. We have to qualify for that. When right? we host, we're hosting it. yeah. Part, yes. part, of the, part of the joy of hosting is hundred percent guaranteed. We <laughs> will be represented, and if our men, because we're not going to be the next one, because we're still miserable. Well, you know what? We will. I, I promise. This is not a podcast for breaking down the rise of the U.S. men's game over the past year since defeat uh, in uh, before the 2018 World Cup. There's a young wave of delirious human phenomenons. If our men's team can be half as good as our women's, this nation, I promise you, will end up being very proud. But the the rise of football here, the consumption of the Premier League, the Champions League, the way CBS are, are delivering that product, the, the rise of the women's game, the National Women's Soccer League, um, which has been one of the joys of, of my lifetime to see a club game for the, the women's side, which has always been World Cup to World Cup, Olympics to Olympics, to see the rise in in passion, the, the incredible fan cultures building around the women's game, um, the rise of La Liga, the Spanish league, uh, which has just been taken over by ESPN, the the the, the Italian league, which uh, CBS are truly investing in. There's so much football, it does not sleep. And um, as someone that loves two things in this world, other than my family, because I love America, this incredible nation. It's the joy of my life to to have become American. And I love football. I truly love the game of football. As I said, it's how I understand the world. To see the rise of the game I love in the nation we love has been has been the joy of a lifetime. You have that joke about it's the next, it's the America's, you know, next pastime since 1972. And I, I've been around for most of that. I, I saw Pele play against the Minnesota Kicks at the Bloomington <laughs> Metropolitan <laughs> Stadium sometime in the 70s. Um <sighs> We've been talking about the rise of soccer and the rise of soccer and the rise, and it's rising, like we talked about at the beginning of this. But, but realistically, and we now there's actually an American player on the best team in Europe, right, Christian? Many Lysik. of them. By the way, many of them. We used to dream about when American kids played against right. Barcelona, Juventus in Italy, Dortmund in Germany, Chelsea. We used to dream of those days. Now we have kids who start on all of those teams. There is truly a golden wave, but finish it. I love what, when you what talk is, about Minnesota. Yeah. It makes me want to have a juicy Lucy, but go on, tell I, me what you were going to ask. What, it, what will it take for, if ever, for this to really become a full-fledged national pastime? Or can it not because our best players are always going to play in Europe because that's where the money is, that's where the audience is. So the the American product will always be a minor league team. Um, and again, Americans don't like looking at things that aren't happening in America generally. And, you, and maybe that's asking, just where you, we're at. Are you asking what will make the domestic league here massive? No, asking, just what what makes what makes what makes what what football turns is massive. What turns but what turns soccer into something that I pay it? And again, it's more accessible to me than ever. Um, but it's still not part of my sports diet. Um, and, and even sports viewing is getting more and more fragmented. So maybe do we never get to a point where it becomes a true mainstream sport that tens of millions of Americans are consuming on a you know, yearly basis? Look, I, I think um, you're asking a couple of intertwined questions. The, the MLS question, that's a domestic American league. Why is that not truly uh, pulling a rating? That is a question for another time and another mm-hmm. podcast. The reality is the prime, the Americans do love the best. They love it. And it is an anathema. The NFL, our domestic league, the best. NBA, the best. Uh, you know, baseball, we call them the world champions. And it is an anathema that the men's league, MLS, is, is, is clearly far from best. And the best leagues are the Premier League. They're in Germany. They're in Spain. They're in Italy. Um, but the Champions League, the the Premier League, 
um, that are, are really at the heart of so many of these new digital plays that the networks are making. And the reality is they are not pulling in NFL type numbers, but nothing does. Um, and what they are pulling in is a young audience, truly in the demo of Americans who are truly madly deeply connected and to some degree and you know this better than me peter this is the future of the broadcasting industry which is narrow casting mm-hmm. where you're you're measuring you this is how i measure my audience men in blazers is not an nfl brand yeah we have, thank god we have a lot of the nfl um characters who love to come on our show aaron Rodgers, um jj watt deandre hopkins i mean they love football. For they, they have one weakness in their in their approach to life is that they watch uh, my crap and they you know love to come on. So the NFL, we are not pulling NFL numbers, but the NFL, the NBA, the number of NBA uh, regulars we have on the show, they, it's not pulling those numbers. Uh, football itself, but it's the the depth of connection. I mo- I monitor for the depth of engagement, the depth of connection. And so the audience who have moved towards football, which has grown um, incredibly in the past decade, it's all young. Um, they have fallen truly madly deeply. Uh, the, the growth spectrum from when you are just casually watching one game, maybe a weekend, to when you are suddenly find yourself sucked into football's black hole and you're watching three, four games and you're consuming at the weekend, that, that trajectory is, uh, is incredibly sticky. Um, and so that ultimately is the future of broadcasting, where we are all narrow casting. And what is narrow casting successfully is where people who watch don't just like what they're watching, but they truly, truly love it. And ultimately, the thing that's made a big difference in football's uh, growth here, baseball, its golden era was in the golden uh, age of radio, when you'd sit at home on your farm uh, in Missouri listening to the Cardinals television came in the nfl rose what an incredible game uh, to cover from 57 camera angles um and really the game for the television era was uh, the nfl it rose and rose to its position of dominance but the internet is what has really made this game go here not just the internet but cable cable means there's more football my football broadcast live in America, every bloody league. I can watch Ecuadorian league football if I want. I can watch the Colombian league. I can watch every single league has a rights deal here. There's more football live on American television than there is in England, even for rights reasons. And so, first of all, we can follow it week to week. The characters, the Star Wars cantina of characters we meet every World Cup, we continue to follow week to week. And then the internet. Um, again, I always tell the story that when I moved here, my team Everton were in a semi-final of an FA Cup and I had to follow along by calling my dad on the telephone <laughs> and having him, I just wasn't on American television. I had to, he held the phone up by the radio for 90 minutes, which was a fortune in those days. Now I can watch everything, but can also follow week to week, thanks to the internet, um, the the transfer rumours, the injuries, the gossip, as closely, you know, I can follow Manchester United from Mississippi, as if I lived a stone's throw from Old Trafford, the home stadium. And that's what has allowed football to go here. It's the perfect sport for the internet age. And ultimately, that is the driver that's made America succumb. You love soccer. You love America. I love America, too. And like you, I'm a, I'm a Jewish guy who was born in the United Kingdom and, and, <laughs> and moved here. I did not write a book about America and how much I love it. Um, uh, a white guy writing about why America is great is uh, a bit against the run of play, I think, as you guys say. So what, what prompted you to come out with a patriotic book timed to uh, the July 4th holiday? I became American in 2018, um, and I do believe, or at least I hope, that it will be the greatest achievement of my lifetime to become an American citizen. I grew up, as I've said, in Liverpool in the 1980s. I love that city. I'm so proud to be from there, but it, my God, it was a dark time. And I felt that my life was there, lived there in black and white. You know, my schooling was very grey gardens, a lot of caning, physical uh, punishment. Uh, the city itself, there was huge unemployment, a, a terrible heroin epidemic. Um, it was pretty bleak. Uh, and um, the thing that allowed me to survive in the 80s and 90s, uh, and I opened the book by saying this, was I was really reared and raised on American soft power, watching heart to heart, 
the love boat fantasy island miami vice watching you know first time that the nfl broadcast on english television uh in the early 80s just unbelievable emotional experience to see our sport which football was then played on muddy pitches by men who just seem to want to get off the field and have a cigarette and a pint and a pie to watch the NFL, Billy White Shoes Johnson, just uh, running a a kickoff return 82 yards was just the aperitif for doing the funky chicken, just the joy, the entertainment, the the razzle-dazzle of American life. You watch Miami Vice from Liverpool and you like pointed at it, you're like, oh my God, that colour, teal, had not even been invented in England yet. And everything felt possible, aspirational um, and wonderful. And so living in New York City during COVID was a, many of your listeners have done it, so I don't need to describe it. You'd wake up with fear and chaos, a sense of chaos in one of the, at the time, um, just the the, the worst hit uh, cities in the world. And I would still wake up, I've always said, there's not a single day I wake up in New York City and uh, don't thank God that I live here and I'm married to my wife. Yeah, I grew up with a stars and stripes I had painted on my bedroom wall. I had the Statue of Liberty painted on it. I had the, a very crude representation of what uh, English people thought was the Manhattan skyline painted on my bedroom wall. I'd go and I'd look at it every single night before I went to sleep. And to actually live here is, I mean, it's just, it's like the first half of Scarface or the last scene in Yentl, it's a dream. And uh, wake up at 5am during COVID, see the sunrise over Broadway on the Upper West Side, a site that always thrills me. It's like a, a Broadway play about to start. Everything's possible, but know at the same time that this pandemic, which no one knew anything about, was crackling all around the city. It was very, I mean, it, it was a just a sense of human darkness. And so when that happens in the present, when you when you feel a sense of chaos in the present and and that spiraled into the Black Lives Matter movement, um, just that incredible summer. And of course, the toxicity of the 2020 elections, when that chaos happens and the thing that I've dreamt about, I put the idea of America at the heart of my life, moving here, having a family here, acting upon these that essentially the, the perception of soft power that I grew up with um, from Liverpool, when you see that just thrown into chaos and darkness and challenge, I think it's a quite a human um, it's quite a human emotion to retreat into the past. And ultimately, this book is me trying to work out um, what this American dream this is a dominant idea. Uh, I mean, Chuck Klosterman, God love him, he blurbed the book and he said the the American dream, which we we've all disregarded in America. But it's a reminder that the perception that Roger Bennett has is is not really a, 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 um, just a form of historical reality. Perception is all we have. That perception that I do have, I try to go back almost like through the breadcrumbs, uh, through the trail in the Enchanted Forest to work out why I had felt this, what I had felt and what the American dream is and what it possibly could be, which is really the focus of the book. It's a very sweet memoir. I, I, I really enjoyed it. And you get to read about Roger losing his virginity, if that's something that appeals to you. Uh, but it's also, you know, it's one of those things where it's it's universal because it's specific. Uh, and I was struck by by your sort of your your like you said your your sort of main north star here was was Chicago. And for me, growing up in Minnesota, it was Chicago. It was John Hughes movies, uh, The Bears, and it seemed about as far away from me as it seemed from you. I think in Liverpool, and and obviously, like you say, you you know you realize that it's uh, that Miami Vice is not actually what America is, and 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 the fridge is not what America is. Um, it's part of what America is, and but you can reconcile the fact that sort of what you grew up fantasizing about and thinking about both is and, and isn't America, that there's a bunch of different parts of America. Um, yeah. And we I mean, can, we can what, celebrate it and, and castigate it at the same, that, that's same time. What, that's ultimately why the epigraph of the book is the Langston Hughes line, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be, which, um, you know, the, when the election was finally called, I spoke to my best mate who was in London, um, like most Americans, I was pretty shattered and utterly exhausted. And it sounded like he was in a war zone. There was just just chaos going on in the background. I said, what's going on, mate? 
And he said, um, you know, there's fireworks going off all over London. And I was like, why? And he said, because, you know, we can dream about America again. And, um, and I was like, are you mad? That dream we had, has it not been shown to be utterly, you know, challenged by what we've all just been through? And he said, ultimately, you know, no country is perfect. Uh, every country uh, has its challenges. Um, but the world is a better place when it can dream about America. And ultimately, um, that's the end of the book. And it's very much um, what I feel as we pod right now. Oh, Roger Bennett, what a joy to talk to you. I've been listening to you for basically a decade, I think. I definitely remember listening to you and Michael uh, talk about America losing to Germany 1-0 in 2014. I was driving from VidCon in Anaheim to LAX, and it was basically the high point of America's soccer, I think. Belgium. That was a... Um it was the Belgium game 2014 where we lost 1-0. Um it was a it was a human darkness. But to, to be candid, I, it was the 2014 um World Cup where we'd actually just gone over the top at ESPN. They shoved us in a panic room with a fixed camera. So great. Um and that's really what changed us um as a brand. We worked out how to do cheap instant uh, television and have never really look back but that was also I, I i had joked i've been in america nearly 20 years at that time uh, and i joked on television that if america got out of the group it was in the group of death it was in a terribly hard group i would finally become an american uh, citizen because i'm terrible at paperwork peter terrible at bureaucracy and and they did get out of the group and they did play defiantly tenaciously uh, against the very talented belgians who finally um beat them but that was also the moment when that ended that i texted my wife and said okay we're gonna fire up the paperwork i'm gonna become american and so you now know who america's first postmaster was <laughs> i do i do i do i do know that my god i learned so much uh for that that test and i'll just say becoming american that experience where you go to a courtroom with 260 other human beings from 60 plus nations and you look around that room and you pledge you re you read the oath and you look around and you see individuals who have you see people who have crawled uh to be here you've seen people who've, who've escaped civil wars who have just escaped true darkness propelled by that idea of america that um i also have but i just had to escape as in my book, a, um, a few bare bottom spankings from sadistic teachers and being beaten up in late night chip shops and Beastie Boys concerts in Liverpool that turned into fully fledged riots. Uh, that's all I had to survive. But when you stand in that room and you say that oath, that is to realize everything that is great about this country, Peter. Roger, we are delighted to have you as part of America. I'm glad you came on this podcast. Uh, like I said, I've been listening to you for years. Uh, the podcast is called Men in Blazers. The TV show is called Men in Blazers. The book is called Reborn in the USA by Roger Bennett. Happy 4th of July, Roger Bennett. Oh, Peter Kafka, and to all of your listeners, I say thank you and courage. That was super fun. Thanks again to Jelani and Joel who produce and edit the show. Thanks again to our sponsors who let us bring this show to you for free. A bunch of more cool stuff is coming your way for free in the near future. Thanks for listening. Thanks for writing. Talk to you soon. <laughs>